Ephesians 5, 31 to 33. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Pray with me, friends. Father, again we come to your word, and again we ask you, add your blessing to the reading, and the study, the application, and the obedience to your word. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. How well do you remember the book of Exodus? When the Israelites were led up out of Egypt and walked through the desert, what stood out about their camp? Whenever the people traveled, they were led, actually, visibly, tangibly led by God. I'm not using that language figuratively. These people did not have a little gut feeling they ascribed to God and thus said, Oh, I've been led. They looked up in the sky and they saw the presence of God in a pillar of cloud or a pillar of fire. Stop and think about the glory of that season, would you? People could look and see a visible reminder of the presence and power of God. From day to day, the people ate food that was supernaturally provided by God. And when they stopped and they camped, they would see the pillar descend on the tabernacle, which is a tent erected to represent the presence of God among them. And you know what amazes me about that season? After a while, the people got so used to seeing the pillar and so used to eating the manna that they stopped being in awe. Because of their sin, because of our human limitations in this life, the people took the power and presence of God for granted. They even complained about supernaturally provided food. They stopped being stunned by the beauty of what the Lord had done. You ever think that we might from time to time be like the people in Exodus? We see God open to us things that God says are profound mysteries and we yawn and want to move on. We have in our lives a great opportunity to display for the world the glory of Jesus Christ and his church. And we think of this as ordinary. Today we're going to finish our series of sermons on the topic related to marriage. I want to ask you to try to engage your heart. I want to ask you to see the glory that's present because God says he's got a thing for you to see that God says is profound. Will you, will you right here, will you on Facebook, will you try to see it as profound? Today, our message has three points, three basic sections. We'll visit for one final time the things we've already learned about marriage 
We'll see the glorious mystery that God proclaims. And finally, we're going to look to call everyone, married folks and single folks alike, to use this mystery for the glory of the Lord. It was in the beginning of the month of August that we began spending sermons building to this point. We took time, beginning of August, to look at God and His Word at humanity and how God designed us, and at marriage particularly. And the whole purpose of that was to help us see the consistent perfection in the thing that the Lord has done in making humanity as God made us. So I will ask you to look at your, at your handouts and see what have we learned so far. There's a bunch of scripture verses on there. I'm not going to read them to you, okay? What have we learned about God? We've learned that God is good. We've learned that God's word is perfect. We've learned that God knows us and our needs better than we know ourselves. We know that God has all authority as the creator. And we know that God created marriage. And God is the only one who therefore has the right to define what it is. Then we looked a little bit about humanity. All people are created in God's image, we learned, and have equal value in God's sight. God created us with gender, male and female. And men and women are designed to provide companionship and to complement one another. Humans are to work, multiplying, ruling over the earth. And then specifically about marriage, we learn that marriage is the lifelong covenant union of one man and one woman. Marriage is the only proper way for humans to experience sexual union. God charges the man in the marriage with the responsibility of leadership in the marriage. God charges the woman in the marriage to help her husband fulfill those God-given tasks. And marriage generally should result in children. That last one, of course, we understand, that one we understand that not everybody gets that blessing and that's always a heartbreaking thing. But if you're entering into marriage, you should expect that you're building a family. And believers should only marry other believers. And in all that we've seen, that's a big list, isn't it? In all that we've seen, I've tried to remind us repeatedly of the perfection of the ways in the Word of God. If we will believe in the perfection of God, if we'll believe in the perfection of God's ways, we will be able to embrace the design of God, knowing that God has plans for our good. Psalm 18, verse 30, I've read multiple times, says, This God, His way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He's a shield for all those who take refuge in him. Does that verse ring in your ears? This God, his way is, what did we say? She got it. This God, his way is perfect. Do you believe that? This God, his way is what? That's important, guys. His word is true. God is good. God's ways, God's design are good. And if we walk away from the design of God, we land in brokenness. 
We harm ourselves. We harm other people. But we also know that God has offered us great mercy, hasn't he? God the Father sent Jesus Christ, God the Son, to earth to rescue for himself a people, the church. And all who come to Jesus in faith and repentance are saved. All who trust in Jesus find life and forgiveness. And all who come to Jesus have the opportunity through obedience, through sanctification, to begin to reshape our lives with the help of God's Spirit to something resembling the perfect design of God. Now, we never get perfect yet in this lifetime. We know God will fulfill his plan. God will transform us all into the image of his son, an image of joyful, God-glorifying perfection. So let me stop and say this to everyone who hears me. If you don't have that forgiveness of God, you need it. You need Jesus so your sins can be forgiven. You need to know Jesus so that you can live out the reason that you exist. You need Jesus to be able to glorify God and not to live in brokenness and die in futility and then enter the judgment of God. You can have God's forgiveness. You can have God's forgiveness and God will give it to you as a free gift. How? You let go of your sin, you trust in Jesus and you ask Jesus, Lord Jesus, please save me. Because of your life, your death, your resurrection, you trust Jesus and entrust your soul to Jesus. For everybody who has the forgiveness of Jesus, let me remind us, what is our purpose? Our highest purpose is, and I think many of you could quote it, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. God made you God, the reason you exist, the reason you breathe, the reason you have bone and blood and muscle and skin, the reason you have a soul is so that you can be glorifying to God. And God created us and shaped us in such a way that when we do things and think things that point to the glory of God... We're matching the purpose for which we were made. And when we do what we were created to do, God will fill our souls with a lasting joy. That's how John Piper can say, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. Listen to me when I say that. God is most glorified in you when you find your satisfaction most in Him. So that when you think about why do I obey the word of God? Why do I obey the laws of God? Why do I follow the commands of God? One of the reasons is because you are chasing joy. You want joy. You want your soul to be full of joy. And so you follow God's word because God's word is the way you do what you were designed to do and gain joy. I want you to have joy, deep, abiding joy. And the only way you're going to get that is when you and your life magnify the God who made you. He made you for joy. He made you for his glory. 
and he made you to be uniquely filled with joy when you do what you were created for, which is glorifying God. For weeks now, we've talked about the design of God for humanity, for sexuality, for gender, marriage, all the rest. And what I want you to see today is the thing that God says is profound. Your marriage, your singleness, your sexuality, all of these things give you the opportunity to find the highest joy imaginable because all of these give you the opportunity to glorify the Lord who made you. That's their purpose. So look with me again, Ephesians 5, and you're going to see what I'm talking about, and hopefully you can see the mystery God proclaims. So point number one, if you're a write-downer, or that's not the way to say that. If you're someone who writes down points, that was weird. See the purpose of marriage as the glory of Christ. Point number one, see the purpose of marriage as the glory of Christ. Listen to the text again. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Last week we looked at the commands of God for wives and husbands in the home from verses 22 to 30. And there we saw a reaffirmation of the fact that God designed men and women with equal worth, equal dignity, but with different roles to play in the marriage and in the home. And in both instances, Paul illustrated those roles by bringing back to our minds a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ and his church, right? Paul said Jesus leads the church that he loves. The church which loves Jesus submits to Jesus' leadership. Likewise, husbands are to lovingly lead like Jesus, while wives are to joyfully follow his lead, husband's lead, like the church follows Jesus. We saw that a couple of times last week. Now, verse 31, Paul cites Genesis 2.24. In Genesis it reads, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. That is exactly the same verse Jesus cited when he talked about the sacredness of marriage in Matthew chapter 19. And it takes us to the very beginning of and the purpose of marriage. Now, stop and focus with me for a moment, okay? I want your attention. If you don't pay attention here, I think you're going to miss a thing God wants you to see. So let me ask you, do you believe the Bible? Okay. Do you believe everything that God inspires is true? Okay. Do you believe if God calls a thing important, it is important? Okay. Do you believe that if God says a thing is profound... It is profound. All right. Look at the beginning of verse 32. Just after Paul cites Genesis 2.24, he wrote, This mystery is profound. God said to you and to me, He's showing us a thing profound. 
So if we are to understand his words correctly, we have to think that what he's about to show us today is profound. This mystery is profound. What's a mystery? We talked about this before. We're not here talking about a whodunit novel when we say mystery. This is not Hercule Poirot. When Paul uses the word mystery here, the way he's using it, he's using it in a formal sense. A mystery is a thing that is present in the Old Testament, but mostly hidden that is unveiled in the New Testament. Here's an example. The idea that the Christ would come first to save people by dying on the cross and rising from the grave, that is a mystery. You can find predictions of it in the Old Testament, but most of the people who knew the Old Testament missed it until after it happened. Similarly, Paul tells us in the book of Ephesians that the fact that the true people of God would include people saved from all nations and not just from ethnic Israel. That was a mystery. It was present in the Old Testament, but most didn't see it until Christ came. Okay, Paul, tell me, because you're ready now, aren't you? What is this profound mystery? Paul points to the origin of marriage. Then he said, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Listen to me. Here's what God says is profound. Earlier, Paul said, you can see the church as a good way to understand your role in marriage. Husbands, love like Jesus. Wives, follow like the church. Now, Paul is going to turn it right side up for you. And that's the mystery, what he's going to do right here. Paul says not that the church is a good illustration of marriage. No, he's telling you marriage exists to point to Jesus. The mystery, the profound mystery, is that marriage from the very beginning, from Genesis chapter 2, when God invented marriage, marriage has always been intended to be a foreshadowing of or a type of Jesus Christ and his church. Think back over the Old Testament. There are many places where marriage and related language is used figuratively. Ezekiel 16, God speaks of Israel as a young woman. He rescues her from death. She, in that picture, the nation grows up, becomes beautiful, and is married to the Lord. And the Lord provided for the nation. And the Lord lavished gifts and faithfulness on the nation. But Israel, like, a, like, a, like an unfaithful bride, she proved faithless. She chased after idols. And God compared that evil to the sin of adultery. Similarly, if you remember the book of Hosea, God uses the image of a husband married to a prostitute to illustrate God's faithfulness compared to Israel's sin. Jeremiah 3.8, God uses divorce language to illustrate the sending away of the northern kingdom into exile. But it's not always negative. God also uses glorious, beautiful love and devotion, marriage language in the Old Testament when he speaks of never ever fully forsaking his people. 
What Paul shows us when he calls this mystery profound, friends, is that one of the reasons that God invented marriage, one of the reasons he invented something as desirable as sexual union, and one of the reasons that we understand the horrible, hateful pain of adultery is so that there would be language strong enough and images powerful enough to help you and me begin, just begin to get a picture of the Lord and the church and the evil of unfaithfulness. You see, the church is not just a convenient way to illustrate the shape of marriage. You might have come away with that from 22 to 30, Oh, the church is a good picture of how I should look in my marriage. No, no, no. You're thinking upside down. Marriage is designed by God to point to and glorify Jesus Christ. Paul is clear about it here in Ephesians. John is clear about this in the book of Revelation when he describes the church collectively as the bride of Christ. Marriage also, by the way, gives us some very simple depictions of the gospel, doesn't it? In marriage, a man leaves his father and mother to unite with his bride. In the gospel, Jesus Christ walks out of heaven to redeem the church. In marriage, the wife is brought under her husband's protection as part of this new family. In the gospel, all who are saved come under Christ's protection and are made new in him. In marriage, the two come together in a beautiful union that provides joy and security and companionship. In the gospel, we find that joy in Christ and eternal life with the Lord and those far exceed any pleasure that anyone could ever come up with in this age. They exceed any pleasure, any companionship, and any joy to be found in any marriage. So what this is saying is that marriage is a type. And when I say that there, I'm using a very formal Bible study hermeneutical word. A type means that marriage is a shadow, a prefiguring of that which is to come. The point of marriage is to, is to foreshadow Christ, the church, and the gospel. The church following Christ is not merely a good illustration for marriage. Marriage exists to be an illustration of Christ and the church. And it may be that you're saying, I don't see this as that profound. That could mean that you've heard it too many times. It could mean that you haven't let it sink in. God made you for the purpose of glorifying God. God made you as a man or God made you as a woman for the purpose of glorifying God. God designed that you and I would live for a portion of our lives as single people for the purpose of glorifying Him. And God designed marriage with all that it entails for the purpose of demonstrating God's glory, God's faithfulness, God's purpose, and God's plan. If this is true, and it is, then every part of your humanity, from singleness to marriage, 
gender and sexuality, from being a child to being a parent, how you lead and how you follow, every part is a way for you to find soul-satisfying joy in glorifying Christ. And every part of your humanity also includes an opportunity for you to hurt yourself by rebelling against your Creator. So with that said, let's turn our minds towards some application. Understanding that this application is not merely for the married people in the room. This application is for all of us. How does this mystery give us the opportunity to glorify Christ? How does this give us the chance to have joy? Point number two, live to depict the glory of Christ. Live to depict the glory of Christ. Let's start with the single folks. Young or old, single people have the opportunity to glorify God in how you deal with all these topics. Let's be simple here. Some would say, Travis, you're taking the most obvious thing. And I'm going to say, yes, indeed, I am. Since marriage is the only proper way for human beings to experience sexual union, you magnify Jesus Christ, singles, when you remain sexually pure outside of marriage. This is true not only because you're obeying the commands of God, but it's true because a pure single life depicts the church and Christ. How? Right now, the image of the church is that of a betrothed woman, an engaged person who is waiting for her husband to come and take her to her new home. Isn't that right? Isn't that a biblical picture of the church? In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus uses the picture of a marriage feast as an illustration of, of his returning and the church's eternal joy. In Revelation 19, verse 9, an angel pronounces the blessing of God at Christ's return, the blessing of God on the church at Christ's return, when he says, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. When you, as a single person, remain sexually pure, you paint a picture for others to see of a faithful church awaiting the return of Jesus Christ. You glorify Jesus and God promises you joy that will not be lost, eternal reward that will not be taken away. It is reward for that kind of faithfulness. But if you are sexually sinful as a single, you harm the picture that God intends for your life to display of the faithful church awaiting her Savior's return. If you don't avoid having sex, if you don't avoid sexual experiences outside of marriage as a single, when you watch pornography, when you watch sexually explicit material, you distort the picture of faithfulness that your life is supposed to be painting. Yes, sexual sin hurts you. Sexual sin hurts anyone you involve. Watching pornography is you participating in the manipulation of sometimes even the forcible kidnapping of people who are then forced to make those movies it is an evil evil thing 
Sexual sin in all of its forms is a rebellion against God as the creator. Sexual sin is a a rebellion against God as our Lord. But sexual sin also dishonors God and it presents a false picture of Christ and the bride. Now, let me add, there is more to being a faithful single person than simply not being sexually impure. I know sometimes people will hear, if you talk to the singles in the church, what I just said is the only thing that's ever said to singles. And I'm sorry for that, that that happens in some places. Single people have the, often the greatest opportunity to take the gospel to the nations of anybody in the church. Single people have a flexibility with time and resources that their married friends do not have. Single people, a single person can give his life, her life, to missions or to caring for aging parents or to serving in the church or to serving the needy in ways that married folks are less free to do. I make my wife less free because I require a great deal of taking care of. So she can't just wander off whenever she wants to and stay out forever doing work that she might love doing. Hopefully there's some benefits to make up for that, but that's just part of being a married person. Singles are men and women of God. Singles can do anything to follow the patterns of godly manhood and womanhood that the Word of God prescribes. You are not incomplete if you're single. And singles who use their lives for the glory of God honor Jesus. Now, what about the married folks? Marriage is good. The Bible says it's not good for a man to be alone, right? So how about the married folks? God is making it plain for us to see in the word that faithfulness in marriage is a way for us to honor the Lord. But even more than generally being obedient, even more than it being the best way to be married, faithfulness to the Lord in marriage is a way for us to demonstrate the glory of the gospel and the goodness of Jesus Christ and his church. Marriage is to be an exclusive union of one man and one woman. When you keep your marriage faithful, you honor the Lord. When you're a one-man woman, or you're a one-woman man, you paint a picture of a faithful Savior who sacrificed himself for a people, for a singular people given to him by the Father. You illustrate in a vivid way the church as a bride for Christ and Christ alone. But unfaithfulness in your marriage, whether it is sinful thought or actions, paints a different picture. Adultery in marriage paints a picture either of an unfaithful Christ or a church committed to more than one God. Neither of those can be. They must not be. A one man and one woman union is the only way to properly depict the faithfulness of Jesus Christ to the church and the church to Jesus Christ. If you keep these thoughts in mind, I think you can see another reason, as we talked a while ago, 
that divorce is a big deal. Breaking a marriage paints a false picture of Christ and the church. I'm not saying that every divorce, or every divorcee is in sin for being divorced by any means. But I will say this, no divorce can occur without at least one party in the marriage committing a major sin. Because it is a rebellion against the command of God. But not only is it a rebellion against the command, it is a distortion of the picture of Christ's never-ending faithfulness to the church. And I would say to you that the fact that the church has not stood stronger against illegitimate, no-fault divorce is one of the greatest stains on the record of the modern church. In fact, taking the risk of stepping aside from my notes... I would argue that the church's unwillingness to take a stand against no-fault divorce has as much to do with the plight of our culture right now and the sexual confusion of the sexual revolution right now as anything. We, and I say we as the church as a whole, we did not stand when we should have. We devalued marriage. We, decoup- we allowed the decoupling of sexuality from marriage. And we have absolutely cursed our culture. We Christians must treasure the sanctity of marriage. Again, we should never pretend divorce is no big deal. Again, I do not want anyone legitimately divorced to feel guilty for a thing that happened to you which was beyond your control that if, there was, if, if you participated in a biblical way. But I do not want anybody to assume that any person just at any time for just any old reason can end their marriage. That paints a false picture of Christ and we don't want to do that. And let me say as well, it's possible I just said all that and you're the guilty one and you know it. Aren't you grateful that the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is for sinners? We need it. I'm not putting you down. I'm not. I just know that we need to value these things highly for the picture they paint of Christ in the church. In our passage in Ephesians 5, Paul looks at the issues that God designed into men and women as a part of how we depict the love of Jesus Christ for the church. God designed men and women to complement one another. God created man and gave the man work to do in the garden. God created woman as the man's fit helper, a companion and a supporter. Both the man and the woman are created in the image of God. Both have immeasurable value having been created in God's image. And both have their own roles to play. In marriage, we only paint a proper picture of Christ and the church when we accept the fact that God made us with gender, that men and women are of equal worth, and that men and women play different roles in the marriage. 
Men in the marriage are supposed to lead. This is not because men are smarter, but it's because this illustrates the loving leadership of Jesus Christ as he heads his church. And men are to love in that leadership, never abusing, never brutalizing, because they are to love in such a way that they illustrate the self-sacrificial love of Jesus Christ. And in the marriage, the wife is to be the husband's helper. She's supposed to follow his lead. She's supposed to be doing that to properly paint a picture for the world to see of a church that lovingly and faithfully follows her Savior's lead. No, she will not follow sinful instructions of sinful men. She does not submit to abuse. But a godly woman will develop a true desire to follow her husband, to help her husband be followable, by the way, so that they as a couple can do what God designed them to do and can rightly glorify the Lord as they point to Christ and the church. Well, just after Paul says the mystery of marriage is that it speaks of Christ and the church, he summarized his instructions to husbands and wives. Verse 33, However, let each one of you love his, wi love his wife <clears throat> as he loves himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband this is about the ultimate glory of Christ and the ultimate good of God's people. This is about your joy. You want to honor the Lord? You want the joy of hearing the Lord say to you, well done, good and faithful servant? Honor Christ in issues related to marriage. Husband, love your wife. Love her as Christ loved the church. Be willing to lay down your life for her good. Be willing to sacrifice your comfort for her good. Lead, but never with harshness and never with cruelty. It is your job to look like Jesus. It is your job to paint a picture of Jesus for a watching world to see. Wife, the word of God in verse 33 says that you should respect your husband. And the idea here has to do with having a demeanor and a desire and an attitude that shows that you want to follow his lead. Don't seek to take from your husband his responsibility. Help him. Don't usurp him. Show by your actions, by your attitude, that you want to see him be what God designed him to be. Be faithful. Look like the church. But doesn't submitting to somebody else's authority belittle a person? What do you think? If you have to submit to somebody, does that make you less of a person? Actually, it looks like Jesus. When Jesus came to earth, isn't it interesting that God had him come to earth as a child, as a baby, and he grew up? And who did Jesus have to obey? He had to obey his parents, didn't he? Jesus is God. Joseph and Mary are not. Jesus is perfect. Joseph and Mary were not. But Jesus, in his youth, willingly submitted to their leadership for the glory of God and to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus was never devalued. He was being righteous. He honored his heavenly Father and when we submit to the authorities that are over us as much as we righteously can, we look like Jesus. What about issues of abuse? I said it last week. 
We do not call any person to submit to sin or abuse. All human authority is to be exercised under the ultimate authority of God. So spousal abuse and child abuse are not things we will tolerate. They're against God. They're against God's word. They're against the law of the land. And scripture never calls you to accept abuse. Instead, if you find yourself in a situation of an abusive authority over you, seek help from the church or from law enforcement because those are institutions that, have, that God's given authority to tell people to stop. Now we know we live in a fallen world, right? So no authority and no submission in our lives is going to be perfect. But as we strive to obey the Lord, we can honor God and find joy in giving God glory. For the last time in the series, I want to read it to you one more time. Psalm 1830. This God, His way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in Him. God is good. God's ways are perfect. God's design is perfect. He knows people. He knows what we need. And God has made it clear that if you're single, you honor the Lord best, and you do yourself the most good when you remain pure. And when you use the life that you have to live as a godly man or a godly woman, serving Him faithfully. And when you honor God by obeying Him in your singleness, you show the watching universe a picture of the church being faithful as she waits for the return of Jesus Christ. And married folks, you honor the Lord best and you do the best for yourselves when you're faithful to God's design for marriage. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, respect your husbands. Keep marriage sacred. Keep the marriage bed pure. Paint a picture for the watching universe of the loving Lord Jesus and his bride, the church. I said at the beginning of this message that this mystery is profound. Do you see it? Your marriage is not primarily about you. Your body and your sexuality are not primarily about you. Your marriage, your singleness, your sexuality, your gender, these are ways for you to have joy, eternal joy, by using them to paint a proper picture of the Savior and the gospel. God's ways are best, and best of all, God's ways are the way for you to have eternal joy in Jesus Christ. Will you pray with me, friends? Father, we thank you for your word. We ask you to make, honestly, make the mystery profound to us. We so easily take this for granted, saying, I know that, I know that, I know that. Or even worse, to allow ourselves to say, yeah, but that was, that was then, this is now. Make us, God, a people who honor you. 
in your holy word. That's our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.